Welcome to the Observer Effects, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 136, Exposure Therapy, Sulawesi, where Rachel was a fellow. For many listening, Rachel needs no introduction. Very active in the English language program fellow community since her time in Indonesia, she came into my orbit when she started the Anti-Racist Book Club, and she has only advocated more and more powerfully that the State Department recognize the impact race has on its project, presenting at pre-departure orientations and the TESOL conference. What I didn't know before interviewing her was what a good storyteller Rachel is. Please make sure you stay till the end and listen to her saga of the five rats. Rachel, can you describe what you look like for people listening? Okay, so I am wearing glasses. My hair is still wet because I just took a shower before this because I went on like a four mile run this morning. And um, I... I'm wearing, oh, we should do show and tell. Okay. I'm wearing batik, a black t-shirt. Amazing. I'm wearing, oh God, I can't stand up. It's a swivel chair. I'm wearing a red and white batik, which is Indonesian traditional textile. And this is um, hand dyed because you can tell because it's on the front and the back. It's the same because there's others that are just printed. Wow. And I thought it was fitting because it's red and white, which um, the colors of the Indonesian flag are red and white, but also uh, UW-Madison is red and white, like go Badgers, et cetera. I'm not really a sports person, but I'm trying to reclaim my hometown. (laughs) That leads so beautifully into the second question, but I'm gonna pause before we get to it. Uh, I just want to say I should have worn my batik. Uh, I've worn it in oh, Chicago. Do you have batik? I do, I do. My students gave me a floral print shirt that <laughs> caused a stir in Chicago, uh, which I love. But uh, I want to ask: Do you know um, the significance of? I mean, it looks like a flower pattern. Is that a specific flower? And yeah, this pattern specifically I don't know a lot about um, unfortunately and I tried uh, really hard to find like local um, patterns and I actually have one this was my second option that I was going to wear which is these amazing pants that have owls on them and this is specifically um, like a Manado North Sulawesi thing local Mm. to my area because uh, the owl Okay, so owl in Indonesian is literally ghost bird. I hope I'm getting that right. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> you man. should fact check me later. And, um, I think literally like, ghost bird is going to be the title of the episode. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so it's like kind of bad luck, I think, around oh. other areas in Indonesia. But in North Sulawesi, the owl is the, um, the sim, like, basically the owl brought the five tribes together to like meet and unite basically. So it's a symbol of leadership. And um, yeah, so this is uh, something that I purchased as a great 
way to remember Monado. And yeah, I was going to ask if you bought your batik or if it was given to you. Or This one I bought at a, um, it's like a cultural museum. They're trying to be a museum. I think museums have different meanings in Indonesia. You might want to edit that out, but sure. you know, it's like not really a museum. So, yeah, that one I bought, but this one that I'm wearing was given to me um, at a teacher training workshop for being a keynote speaker, which is a Amazing. great present. Amazing. Amazing. So you were in, uh, so it was Sulawesi that you were in. Um, I was in Manado City in North Sulawesi. So um, my second question then is always, can you describe where you are? But could you briefly describe where you are and where you were and why? <laughs> okay. So if you ask me that question right now, I'm in my childhood home but not my childhood room. Oh no, displaced. This is actually my sister's room. Uh, yes, I. It's a long story. Let's not go into it. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's a map of Madison up. Okay. Because that's something that I always try to do when I live somewhere abroad. Try to get the like know the geography of the place. So I had a map of Indonesia in my house. And um, yeah, I'm just trying to incorporate more of the things that I've learned abroad to try to get to know Madison better. So I'm basically a tourist in my hometown. Um, okay, so if you ask me, where am I? Okay, here are the places that I think of for Indonesia or for Manado. So I'm in a three bedroom house that is both really fancy and really not fancy and kind of like the best place to live and the worst place to live because <laughs> it's like uh, glamping where there's a piano and a chandelier hanging from the ceiling, but it's open, like the roof is here and the it's like totally open to the elements. So I got used to living with a lot of visitors and, um, my kitchen is, there's a balcony and I have a gas stove outside on the balcony and the kitchen sink is also there. And um, to the right, there's mountains where the sun comes up behind and like a coconut tree or palm tree. Mm -hmm. And then to the left, there's a view of mountains and like a tiny bit of the sea. And in the second year, there's a giant hole in the backyard and then a cell phone tower that is literally stretching to the sky, like within a hand's reach of my kitchen sink and like the cage of it. I can just like touch it if I wanted to from my balcony. And um, yeah, that was an interesting experience. Um, Okay, I'm also in my office, which has like three, uh, like a nice view of the outdoors and like coconut trees or whatever and like rain during monsoon season or rainy season. And I'm also in a classroom that is in the old building next to the new building. And 
this classroom doesn't have uh, working electricity, like lights or projectors are not usable. And there's like 30 to 50 students in my class. And this is like the one of the, it's like, it's better than the really dark classroom that doesn't have any light and it's covered by shade. So I literally brought a LED like camp flashlight to class. But it's uh, not as good as the one on the third floor, which has electricity and so you can use a projector and a lot more space. But that one gets really hot in the afternoon because of all the direct sunlight. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm also on, I'm also behind the mall watching the sunset on the ocean, like directly across from the KFC sitting on the rock. Amazing. So why? <laughs> why what? Why, why are slash were you there? Uh, those are like my go-to places. I tried to, uh, I was either at home or at school and I tried to see the sunset because it was very constant, like between 5.30 and 6. And I think those are, those are the places that I like frequented the most. Actually, I mean, uh, for the listeners, can you describe the program? (laughs) Briefly, briefly. Okay. Um, Okay. The English Language Fellow Program is a U.S. State Department funded exchange program, kind of exchange program for uh, American teachers to go and teach in countries around the world. I feel like it's like it's like 200 countries or something like that. And um, every project is different and every location is very unique and the school or context. Some people are teaching at universities primarily some people are doing uh teacher training did you plan to go to indonesia did you hope to was it on your radar or was it totally random i knew nothing about indonesia before i went when i applied for the fellowship i was really interested in well i marked um that i would go anywhere in the world and so i was more interested in the fact that the fellowship would match you based on your qualifications and the project yeah. so that seems like a better way instead of me just picking a country or a school and hoping that it would fit um so i really liked that aspect of it so i was open to go anywhere um and i think that uh yeah indonesia just really worked out yeah so I want to get into your relationship to travel. It sounds like you have traveled by picking places in the past, but before we get to that, let's, let's spend a little time in Indonesia. Uh, You got a year and a half, right? Like one and a half fellowships kind of. So you got to go deeper than I did in Jerusalem. Um, Describe that experience. Like what was it? like arriving and how did you feel at the beginning and how did your feelings change over the fellowship the first six months was really difficult for me it was like a huge adjustment just personally and professionally like personally i had to get used to um you know living with a lot of critters in my house Mm. and um like just the living in 90 degree weather um 
mostly without AC. And uh, professionally, um, it was challenging because I had huge classes. Uh, there was some miscommunication about my schedule. And so I think I had more classes than I should have. And I was definitely really burnt out because like when you have, so I had like, well, basically I was burnt out because of the number of students and um, number of times we met a week. So it was way too many uh, preps, like lessons, unique lessons that you had to prepare a week for yeah, non-teachers yeah. listening. And, um, and, you know, just not having electricity in my classrooms, or even if I had a projector, like, it might not work just because of that day. And I had always been used to having a projector and teaching. Uh, I think I just relied on that heavily in my teaching. So that was a big adjustment. Um, after going to mid-year, or so, yeah, after going to mid-year, I got some good ideas to use for my teaching. So I started doing like stations where um, people rotated in different corners. And so I was able to do that with my 50 person speaking class. Um, and like, it, it went really well. Um, I also learned to scuba dive while I was there. And that's a whole nother story because I didn't like really swim before I went to Indonesia. Wow. And then, and then, um, what was the other parts of your question? Like the second year? How did your feelings change over oh, that yeah. amount of time? So I definitely remember, I definitely remembered that in the second year, like going back, I was really looking forward to going back because there was like this sense of home because mm. it was like, um, I think I really identify with whatever local culture I'm in and like Monado really clicked and I was really looking forward to being back after being away during the summer. And it was just so great to like go to school and be greeted by people and being like, hi, Ms. Rachel. Um, that's so great because usually I walk around campus and people think I'm a student. Um, and because I look very, <laughs> oh, I guess I probably should have included this in my like, what do I look like? But people usually think I'm like, 10 to 15 years younger than I am in New York City I got carded for an R-rated movie and I was with my sister who is four years younger than me I was like in my mid-20s and I asked him like how old are you because I'm definitely older than you and he was like I'm 21 and I was like yeah I'm older than you how old do you think my sister is because he carded me but not her oh. and he was like oh she's like she looks like she's 18 and I was like we're both older than that um this is not really relevant I just think it's a it's it the looking young thing when teaching in Asia poses a lot of professional challenges because people don't take you as seriously yeah and that was also a big challenge for me as well. And, and I think it was a big challenge within the fellowship because I had so much imposter syndrome going into the fellowship because I felt like I had minimum qualifications. Mm -hmm. And there's people with like 20, 30, 40 years teaching experience. Yeah. And I just 
um like it's hard when you already feel like you're not good enough but then you also look younger than you are and so people think that you're the same age as your students yeah 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 uh well that leads me to my next question what what stood out to you about indonesian culture um we could get into you know education like what differences you saw there and then also just just at large like what is it like to integrate into indonesian culture did you feel that you did at all or were you on the outside or that's a lot there <laughs> it's an interesting question so like manado culture i really like um like the food is great there's a lot of fresh fish and i don't really eat a lot of um like non-seafood meat so that was really great um the food is spicy and i didn't really eat spicy food before indonesia because it's never added to the flavor in my opinion but spicy food in manado specifically is amazing and definitely tastes good so and and even when i would travel around the rest of indonesia i'd be like i should have just brought some fresh uh dabu dabu which is like salsa like sauce with me in my carry-on because it's disappointing everywhere else except for bali which had something similar um so like uh and i also learned the local language bahasa manado um somewhat and um i think that for me well it's going to be different oh i should explain I should have explained in the what I look like. So I'm Asian American and so I look like a lot of people in Asia. And especially in Manado, a lot of people I people say that it's originally from like Mongolia like people came over or something. That's what I've heard, but I don't know. Yeah. If that's actually true. But a lot of people look more um what you would think of like east asian mm-hmm. um in manado so i was able to once i got more tan i was able to <laughs> like pass for a local most of the time so it's interesting because in my experience teaching abroad i've been in japan china and manado indonesia and those are all places where i could basically pass as a local if i didn't like talk a lot basically so i would just my i think my default script has been like oh just like keep your mouth shut and then try to pass and i think that that has been uh that's something that i realized i was doing in indonesia like it was really affecting me like this desire to belong to a community and that was in like in that people saw me as a local and i would be kind of annoyed if they like recognized my foreignness almost yeah and um yeah so i also was mistaken for a chinese tourist once and i know that because <laughs> the i always like go to this one grocery store and then i would go in the i went in the back entrance which is where a lot of chinese tourists come because now they have a big like they have direct flights to and from china and they have like big tourist groups coming um and 
a lot of them come through that entrance and the security guard uh asked me to lock my bag and I'd never experienced that in like the whole first year that I'd been there and so I was really uh upset with that and the next time I went in that back entrance I like made sure to have like a covering my sleeves because locals don't show as much skin as like tourists yeah. and like carrying some takeout like uh the grilled fish things that I <laughs> like to eat and they didn't say anything even though it was the same entrance so um yeah there's definitely uh like some there's definitely differences for me living abroad like when I came into the fellowship there was a lot of material of people like especially um like other women teachers who had taught in Indonesia like previous fellows keeping blogs but I didn't really read any of those blogs because I knew that their experience would not be like mine and also when I talked with like a returned Peace Corps volunteer who had like served in, um, in Indonesia, like he was also a uh, white man with blue eyes. And so that experience, I was like, you're going to be loved anywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's very different. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there's definitely, um, I knew that there were going to be a lot of differences going in and um but yeah i don't know where i'm going with this question i don't know where well, you're going with this question well um this is a really big question but how do you think living in indonesia changed you indonesia changed me so much <laughs> like it was just so <laughs> challenging that i had to grow okay so my mantra going when i first applied as a undergrad applying to teach in places and I ended up teaching in Japan was like embrace the uncertainty and mm -hmm. that's what I was just like but in the fellowship I had to I had to like channel challenges or opportunities for growth mm. so I'd be like I have a phobia of a lot of little things and there are thousands of ants in my house this is free exposure therapy. If I just <laughs> stare at these ants. And it was such a struggle at the beginning. Did you literally do that? Just like sit and stare at them? Yeah, I would like, I would look at them and kind of examine them and it would freak me out. But I would be like, this is, this is good exposure therapy. Yeah. So um yeah and then so by the time in the second year I was definitely a lot more like whatever about the ants like there were ants on my food so sometimes if you leave things out you know the ants will find it and yeah. I left some like chocolate biscuit things overnight and they found it of course but I had just spent money on this and I was like I'll just put it in the freezer freeze their bodies, brush off their corpses, and just eat it, because whatever. Wow. Extra protein. <laughs> so Indonesia definitely, um, like, made me confront nature and, like, live with nature in a way that I've never done, because I was definitely, and, like, I was not an outdoors person 
is basically an indoor cat for my entire life. <laughs> and um, so like within the living situation and then with like scuba diving and also um, have you read Digital Minimalism? No. I think you would appreciate it. There's I, this thing I live, about solitude. I lived it, but I haven't, haven't read it. <laughs> There's this thing about solitude in it where they define it as like without the input from other minds. And so I tried to incorporate and how that's useful in your life to have that time. And so I, I realized that I was constantly playing music and podcasts in the background because it's hard to like live alone. Um, and so it's like embrace the loneliness and just tried to have like less noise around. And um, uh, so I spent more time looking at nature because I would be on my balcony and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to um, eat dinner and I'm like not going to watch something. I'm just gonna like sit here and eat my meal and look at the birds that are hanging from the phone cord or one of those telephone wires because yeah. of the cell phone tower and like without the cell phone tower there wouldn't be these telephone wires and these birds hanging out <laughs> so there's a lot of um like finding opportunities to observe nature also in the scuba diving it's like an hour of silence where you're just looking and observing yeah. um and like doing that more, I think it definitely gave me an, an, a new appreciation for nature. And it like the solitude time forces you to uh, like be in your head and think about your thoughts and kind of be more self-aware about it. So I've been thinking about how like outward focus can help inward focus like when you're outwardly focusing on nature or whatever, it kind of forces you to also focus on yourself. Yeah. But then it can be also distracting because like with, uh, with traveling, it's easy to just like go to a new place and like, I'm just gonna, um, you know, go to all these new places and do it, do all these things. And that's like, a, like I've done that too. And it kind of, takes away from inward focus because you're just like you're in a new city you're like oh I need to do these things and you don't really take time to like just sit and do nothing right yeah yeah <laughs> have you do you think you'll carry that forward yeah it's definitely places you go like yeah I think that I definitely will because it's um, well, I'm just conscious more of solitude time. Like, so with my running now, which is something new that I started during quarantine, yeah, I, I don't I run with music. Instagram yeah, that Instagram, you, right? like, that's a big change for you, right? Like, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I don't think of myself as an athletic person at all, but I did learn to relearn how to swim because I had taken uh, lessons in middle school. Um, but I hadn't gone in the water for a long time and I like feel very uncomfortable and like kind of scared of water. Mm -hmm. And that was like something that I forced myself to do. Um, and then I realized that I really like the silence of swimming and scuba diving. 
because yeah i got really into white noise clothes in indonesia because indonesia is a very loud country yeah. there's just like motorcycles there's um people blaring karaoke and like singing at 3 a.m at night <laughs> and like there's roosters that don't wait till dawn and lots of dogs in my area because uh, Manado is christian majority and um so like white noise the swimming sc slash scuba diving like silence so wait, now sorry. when i run yeah that, that seems like a detail to drop down on really quick Did I might have zoned out. Did you just say there's lots of dogs? And then as an aside, Monado's majority Christian. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Can you explain the connection? There? Um, yeah, sure. So um, a lot of Muslims think that dogs, um, there's something specific about like dog spit or something. Okay. But anyway, having dogs is, Joe, I can't be an authority on Muslim, like, Islamic teaching. You Basically, you offered this, not, not me. It's just an aside. You, you said like it as though... don't eat pork. You said it as though everyone would understand, and I don't think everyone okay. will. So you don't have to be an authority, but at least, like, help us know why you said that. A lot of Muslims don't eat pork, and they don't have dogs, because it's considered not... Uh, something <laughs> yeah well so you don't have to explain any further but that's just interesting to me as like um a signifier that you pick up on living in a new culture like after a little time you realize oh dogs this could be a christian area you know like that's something that happens when you travel and start observing and noticing those cultural differences so yeah um, okay wait let me re-say it muslims don't a lot of muslims don't eat pork and they don't own dogs so when I traveled to other areas outside of Manado, like I would notice that there were a lot of cats. Yeah. But not dogs. Yeah. But in my area, there's way more dogs. And like a lot of people own dogs and really like dogs. And so, um, you know, I would forget because in my class, I can say like cats or dogs, like this or that question. But I could never do that at a, I had to be very careful when I did workshops outside of Monado or just if they were for an Islamic institution that I wasn't um, bringing up things that were, you know, kind of, I, I don't think it's offensive because they would understand that I'm not from there, but it's just kind of like everyone would pick cats. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, thank you for sharing that because uh jerusalem is full of cats you know and uh it's very pronounced and i need to go back and investigate and see if there's a link there um to religion yeah maybe yeah but i mean that's that's the that's the one of the points of this podcast just to like pick out what details jump out and to what extent can we read into those you know there is some information that's communicated by that yeah and that's that you know, living in Monado has changed your relationship to dogs. Like that's going to yeah, be in I, your understanding from now on, you know? Yeah. I also realized that there's a lot of diversity in the way Muslims practice their faith. I mean, obviously, because every, you know, there's diversity in how everyone practices their faith. But 
like I had never really been um, around a lot of Muslims, I think. So, you know, I would have a, um, I had a Muslim driver, like Uber, the local Uber. And uh, I asked him, I think he mentioned dogs and I was like, oh, do you have dogs? So he was Muslim and he had two dogs and he grew up with dogs. And so, but there's others who are more strict about that and like would never own dogs as a Muslim. And so it's just interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you were talking about noise and getting into white noise because of all the uh-huh. loudness yeah. of Monado and Indonesia. I'm going somewhere with that. What was your question? How did, can you, are you carrying this I forward? I talking about solitude. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I was saying that um, when I run, so I've been doing couch to 5K and those are typically like, 30-ish minutes alternating running and walking and now it's become more of an hour because I started on the 10k schedule amazing but I never listen to music when I run Mm. because I think that I've been challenging myself to be okay with being bored yeah like I think that's part of solitude like when you're waiting in line to like resist that impulse to check your phone all the time and to just notice and look around. Mm-hmm. Um, and like with running, it's nice because I can just focus on my breathing because scuba makes you really aware of your breathing because you don't want to use up all your air. Yeah. So I like practice. I got used to breathing in for four and breathing out for four. And that's also translated into running because breathing is uh, an important part of like exercise and also everything. Um, but yeah. So uh, let's broaden our scope a little bit then. What has been your relationship to travel? It sounds like it's been a huge part of your identity. Yeah, I think it's made me a lot more adventurous as an anxious person. Uh huh. Because trying new things like really freaks me out. <laughs> But I think I'm kind of, I like, I am very drawn towards it. So basically my practice before going to a new country is to try not to think about it at all for like the whole summer before I leave. And then just like show up and be like, okay, cool. I'm here. Now wow. what? Wow. Where did that come yeah, from? Yeah, because it freaks me out. Uh, just a coping mechanism or? Yeah, I think there's like a lot of like, I was raised with really high expectations and so like perfectionism and having control over things and like, you know, my parents as immigrants, I think they want to find control in a new country in the way, you know, cause life is really uncertain and it's like um, trying to find ways to like, trying to feel like you have control over your life and your future I think that's like a big thing for people who live in a new place um and like so growing up I was I didn't want to take risks like even in school I wouldn't take new classes even though I was interested in that subject because it might um like I might do poorly in that class and then when I was graduating, I think that 
my desire to like explore a new country and also find out about my roots more because my grandma is from Japan um, and like search for belonging or mm, acceptance. Yeah. Also, it kind of just pushed me to be more like learn to embrace uncertainty and be more and then in Indonesia also especially like be more comfortable with discomfort yeah because you know I'd be getting bit by like 10 mosquitoes a day <laughs> like, <laughs> like Indonesia is an amazing country but it's also really challenging to live in if someone's not used to that and I think that um it really has forced me to like it's it's forced me to just be more open-minded and also I've been thinking a lot about how you can have you read A Tale for the Time Being no by Ruth Ozeki okay so send me that recommendation yes I'll keep a list um there's like all this there's like all this zen stuff in it you know where like up is down Mm. you're like is up down but then like you get a glimmer of like oh maybe up is down (laughs) like like Um, like a cone like uh the i don't know uh like a saying that it has no way to interpret it just kind of blocks your mind and then you yeah like what's the sound of one hand clapping (laughs) yeah kind of thing not exactly like that but kind of like then double think you know like in 1984 where they're like war is peace yeah and things like that where you like can believe two things that are kind of contradictory at the same time i think that travel has really helped me be able to do that like avocados in indonesia are considered sweet they're with the fruits yeah. And they're made into smoothies with like chocolate syrup. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, and if you tell them that in the US or a lot of other places, people put avocado on like burgers and stuff like that, they'll be like, oh my God, that is disgusting. <laughs> Which is the same reaction that you get when you are like, people put sugar on avocado in the US. People are like, that's gross. That's such um, a good concrete example. And Zen doublespeak is such a good way to describe the, the effect of travel. And yeah. by the way, listen, I've made a, an avocado chocolate cake. I replaced the butter with avocado. That's really common apparently. And it tastes so much better. It's, it's, there is a difference. It's still chocolate cake, you know, but it's like, I don't know. Yeah, it's healthier for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah, I think it's getting more popular in the um, like healthy food community yeah. to replace avocado. But I, I still think that like if you gave someone avocado and you were like put sugar on it, they would be like disgusted by that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. But so like there's this thing where like you can just believe that avocados are salty and avocados are sweet and i can believe that at the same time yeah and so i think that's been really helpful for me because i realized that i am i'm always like oh i'm not doing good enough i can do better especially Mm. like in my life or in teaching where it's Mm. like not happy with how that lesson went like i'm gonna do it better next time or like just focusing on how I can do better or how I'm not measuring up to what I expect. And I have very high expectations for myself. 
Um, but I've been practicing trying to believe two things that are kind of opposite too, which is like, I'm doing the best that I can and I can do better in the future. Mm. And it's like, instead of just focusing on, I can do better in the future, like I can, I am doing the best that I can now. And they're kind of contradictory, but they can also both be true. Yeah. Yeah. That's really so, um, well said and new. You know, I mean, the purpose of this podcast is just to trigger my own imagination to understand travel and its effect on me, but also other people. And I've heard so much, you know, it broadens your horizon. That's the most popular response, um, that metaphor. But um, this is a new one that I'm going to have to ponder. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Can I also share a quote with you? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Rebecca Solnit wrote this book. She's have so you read good. It? I haven't, but, guide but she's amazing. Getting the Field Guide to Getting Lost. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. Okay. I read it while I was in Indonesia, and I think in my second semester, I think it really helped me um, realize that I can be okay with like a loss of control hmm. and okay so she plays with the different meanings of like lost or losing throughout the book which is like a series of memoirs but also art history and also just like everything it's kind of genre spanning um, okay so in this quote it's like lost really has two dis disparate meanings Losing things is about the familiar falling away. Getting lost is about the unfamiliar appearing. Mm. There are objects and people that disappear from your sight or knowledge or possession. You lose a bracelet, a friend, the key. You still know where you are. Everything is familiar except that there is one item less, one missing element. Or you get lost in which the world has become larger than your knowledge of it. Either way, there's a loss of control. Wow. And so I think I was really attached to the, like, I remember losing a scarf and being like, I bought that scarf in China. I'm never going to be able to go back to that specific place in time and get that scarf. And I lost it on the street in New York City. And I was like, feel like grieving the loss of, you know, like a, a treasured friend. Because yeah. it's just been with me and um, feeling like feeling like okay with losing things and also getting lost because like just being like it will be okay and that loss is okay. And I think I made another note from this book that was like you have to decay in order to transform mm -hmm. like with butterflies like the cocoon yeah, um, like decays and then you transform. So like it's not change is like really messy and kind of ugly, but yeah, you have to get used to this loss of control. I think. Very well said. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the ideal <laughs> for these episodes. Uh, I'm realizing I'm finding again and again with fellows, fellow fellows that these interviews are just bursting at the seams and there's a million more questions I could ask, but I yeah. think I think I'm just going to go to the last question and hope okay. that, that we'll do a follow up someday. Yeah, um, because there's a lot more to cover. But 
you've, you've already spoken really well on the main theme of the podcast, which is how has travel changed you? So the last question is what's your best travel story then? And you can tell more than one if you want. Okay. I've been thinking about this meaning of best because I feel like best implies the most like glamorous, you know, I think travel, people depends, think... Depends, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but people have this idea of, like, travel is, like, really cool and interesting and, like, wow, I'm so jealous of your travel. But, so, I'm going to tell you a story that is interesting, but it's not going to appear on my social media because it's not, like, a highlights real thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I'm going to tell you about the time. Also, I feel like it has a really great saga. <laughs> like... All right. This is the time that I picked up five dead rats in Indonesia. Each rat is like its own chapter. It's basically like Harry Potter. So rat number one. Okay. Okay. Rat number one. Rachel and rat number one. Rat number one happened to me one month after I moved into my house that I thought was super fancy. There was a, I woke up. Saturday morning, walked into my living room, and there was a very dead rat in the middle of my floor. And I didn't know how it got there, but I was like, okay, I have to deal with this situation because I'm an adult and I'm going to put my hand in a plastic bag and then put pick up the rat and put it in another plastic bag. And then when I picked it up, it was should I provide like a trigger warning or like graphic content? Okay. I can do that at the top of the episode. <laughs> All right. When I picked up this rat, there was like a ton of maggots <sighs> attached to it. And so then I also had to pick up the maggots and then put that in the trash outside. That was rat number one. I'm, I remember posting on my Instagram, like I just picked up a dead rat this Saturday morning that was full of maggots. How's your Saturday going? Okay, that was rat number one. Rat so number the, two. I mean, your ant training, your ant exposure really served you well then, it sounds like. Well, the ant training was also ongoing at the same time. This was a month in. Oh, so okay. It was very, wow. um, it was my home, what's it called? Home warming? Yeah, uh, uh, housewarming welcome. Housewarming, like, yeah. yeah. This is my housewarming welcome. Yeah, um, wow. Oh, wow. so rats number one and two happened to me, and three, four, and five, I happened to the rat. <laughs> <laughs> Do go on. <laughs> okay. So rat number two was when I was leaving for school, I went outside um, in the driveway, there was this giant rat that was like bigger than my hand and it was dead and it was on the driveway. And I was like, I guess I should pick this up because A, I've already picked up a dead rat before, so this is not new. And B, what if it just sits here and like rots? Like I would rather pick up a freshly dead rat than a rotting rat. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Head, so up, head off the maggots rat. too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I'd rather not repeat the maggots. So I picked this one up also, and it was so heavy and so huge. Wow. Just like really put the New York City rats to shame. Yeah. That was rat number two. Um, so I put that in the trash also. So rats, uh, the other rats were at the end of my fellowship. 
where, okay, so between this time, I just got used to living with rats because I didn't want to try to poison them because then I would have to deal with corpses everywhere and I didn't want to repeat the maggot situation where you don't know where it is and it's there forever. Um, so I just like would watch them occasionally like come down the slide in my house. It was like Spider-Man as a rat. And it was just like, come down and like chill and then go back. And I'd be like, okay, you guys stay over there. I'm staying over here. You can just be roommates. And they would also live on the roof. So when my, um, when people came to visit, they would be like, blah, 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 on the roof at night. But I had my white noise at night, so it was fine. I didn't care. Um, and then, Okay, so my friend who's Indonesian, she was moving to a different city and she gave me these plants. And I never really kept plants before, but then I got really attached to them because you can see them like grow and make, it's like visible progress. Yeah. Um, and so the rats started eating the plants. And then I was like, you can't attack my plant babies. That is the line. And so then I asked my counterpart or like the person at school who's uh, responsible for me about um, rat options. And he was like, there's this poison and it will make them seek the light when they eat it. So like you'll see their dead bodies instead of them like hiding in corners or in the ceiling. Wow. It's amazing. And so then like I was it, like, like okay, it causes great. a chemical response that yeah, makes that, that that's light. I don't know how to what to feel about that. That's genius, but also horrible, but also practical. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about this. Because so then I got some of that and I put some of the cubes around where I've been seeing them, and then I left the uh, like the rest of the bag with the other like chemical products in my house, and then I didn't know if it would work. And then like a week later, I noticed that the like the rest of the bag was missing. So I guess it's like really delicious to rats. So they like all ate it. And then the next couple of weeks, I was just like sniffing my house for like, because I would smell a corpse and then I would have to find it. So it was like the worst scavenger hunt ever. So rat three was like by my kitchen stove. Rat four was like on the counter next to my fridge. There's more. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then rat five, I was on the phone with another fellow in Indonesia who I'm close with. And we were catching up about how our project, their, you know, fellowships are going. And I go to the bathroom and then there's like a rat. Should I tell the story or should I just read the haiku that I wrote about this after? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'll just read the haiku. Dead rat number five. Two feet from rat. Dying twitching near toilet. Smashed its head with rock. Because. <laughs> because. <laughs> this. I went into the bathroom and this rat was like limping. And it was like clearly dying. And I was on the phone and I was like what should I do? And she was like, well, it would be more humane if you killed it. And I was like, okay. And so I was just like, okay, just keep talking. And then I went outside and found a rock and then I was like, bash this rock 
rat's head in with a rock. And then I had to clean up the blood that was on my bathroom. And um, yeah, I was like, sorry, rat. That was rat number five. Um, yeah, I think the story is really metaphorically resonant because there was like a lot of uh, things. It was going from like passive to active. It was also like just learning to live with the rats and like how do we live with things that we don't want to live with yeah. and um and also it's like a story that i feel like yeah it's not it's not in the highlights reel but it's like really interesting <laughs> and i'm really glad that you've given me a platform to share this that is such a good story <laughs> thank you for sharing that <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. It was a delight listening to you. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening. Uh, have you studied storytelling? Because it ha it has great elements, like, it's classic escalation and it is really metaphorically resonance. Yes. And, and it, I mean, you're a hero in the story, like, and you've been changed by taking decisive action. Like I haven't, I have also always thought that I was bad at telling stories, Interesting. but I think that it's more like a, it's like in your 50th episode, you talk about, you mentioned like that you've been thinking about what makes a good story. Yeah. And like beside the structural elements, I think that it requires like the storyteller has to be vulnerable or willing to be vulnerable and also believe that their story matters. Yes. And that the listener and the listener also has to be like willing to like honor that by listening and believing that it's a story worth telling. Yeah. Um, and I think that I've always felt like I wasn't good at telling stories mostly because I didn't feel like they were important enough to be shared or that other people would care about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's been like a, that's something that's changed also because of my fellowship because like now I'm realizing since I've been back, like I have a lot to share. Well, also through the workshop or through all the teacher training workshops, I was like, oh, I have like lots of things to share with teachers. Yeah. Um, I, I don't feel like I'm like, I feel like I've had enough experience to share that with other teachers. And then also the part about like, um, cause Jacqueline would send the day you began that children's book. It's just like, I have it. It's like there will be times when you walk into a room and no one is quite like you until the day you begin to share your stories. And so I've just been thinking about that. Like the fact that I don't see people like me sharing their stories doesn't mean that I shouldn't because like I'm now believing that my stories are valuable and have impact and also if I share my stories then that opens the door for people who look like me to also share their stories yeah. because like 
me from two years ago when I was starting with fellowship, like I didn't really have like a, you know, a roadmap for this. Yeah. And so I feel like I'm kind of just being my like roadmap for what I wish I had. Yeah. Yeah. You may have figured out that this is the ulterior motive of this podcast to, uh, uh, I see it as a gift to people to spotlight them, to create a space, to validate people, just everyone I meet, you know, just to say, I care. I want to listen and see what happens. That That's the observer effect that I hope, like people often tell me afterwards that, you know, their mind raced all night and they're thinking about the questions and what they could have said. And it's a really powerful tool, the interview, you know, like, um, and just, you don't, most people don't know that they can tell stories because no one, no one listens really like in our society, in American society, it's just really surface level, especially not to travel stories. You know, it's so crushing to come back bursting to tell, but no one gives a shit, you know, like, yeah. (laughs) So uh, I, um, I think you need to take that and, and, offered at the next storytelling event at the COP. Oh, you uh, think I should tell my story of the five dead rats? Yes, it's amazing. It's, it's perfect so for not, that. It's so not like, you know, fellowship but the, it's, material. But it is, it is. It takes a lot of courage to crush an animal's skull. <laughs> and it says a lot about you and the effect of the fellowship. And yeah, yeah it's grim, but it's, uh, it really conveys so much. Two other thoughts. Uh, Frank McCourt, uh, who wrote Angela's Ashes, I did a, an episode at the school where he grew up attending in Limerick, Ireland, with the woman who built a museum there about him. And uh, I love him. Uh, he's, Ireland's my favorite country. Um, and uh, he became a teacher uh, in New York and in an urban setting in a really challenging environment. And he, wrote a book called teacher man uh, after he became famous that describes, I, I wanted to understand his teaching and it's basically embarrassingly just storytelling. Like he identified that he started telling the stories that became Angela's ashes in his classes, you know, as a way to connect with his students and, and they ate it up. And so his students are responsible for this, bestseller like he never would have written the book if they hadn't empowered him through their listening you know that's really interesting because I feel like when we talk about teacher talk and like I don't want to take time away from students talking um but yeah I guess there's also a role for storytelling in the classroom I just haven't really explored it have you a a ton I I aspire to be a writer. And so I've used my classrooms as a chance to practice. Um, and I think storytelling is so human and important and to get good at it as a teacher and use it not selfishly or indulgently. Um, I mean, that's why I say his book is embarrassing because he just like, it seems like he just told like used it as therapy basically, you know? Um, but like you can see the effect it had on his students. And um, I, I just think it's one of the most important tools as humans that we can possibly hone and use to communicate because it's so powerful. Yeah. Oh, um, I guess that's not true. I have read um, 
things that I've written to my students yeah in an effort to show them like how you can be vulnerable in writing and tell a good story and also I've had them do Pecha Kucha's presentations yeah. yeah and so I've shared my own and one of mine has been like learning to scuba dive when I didn't really swim and yeah. that story is is also interesting so you, you can embed so much teaching in a story you know if you do it right and then one other thing uh I also recorded an episode at the Irish uh immigration museum in Dublin about Nellie Bly who was uh an Irish American trailblazing journalist who traveled the world and infiltrated a mental asylum in New York in the 1800s to expose you know muckraking journalism the guy who told me the stories I was just like at the end you're so good at storytelling you know he's a representative of the museum and I'm like why how did that happen and he said you know my parents told me when I when I left home they said Nathan wherever you go in the world as long as you have three stories, uh, two jokes and a song, you'll be fine. <laughs> and I just thought that is the Irish character summed up right there. And three I, I love jokes, Three stories, two jokes and a song. Yeah. I'm okay. still working on my, my courage that. to have a song. I don't, I'm not there yet, but. 